Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? With him, Dave Moore, and me, Neil Delamere, where we talk about things that you should know, but you don't know. Interesting things, stories, uh, facts, trivia, general theories of the world. You can get us on at uh, Why Would You Tell Me That? on Instagram, and we're proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. Dave Moore, it is his turn today to wow me with something amazing in the second half and fill me with trivia and bluster in the first. What do you got? Okay, well, in the second half, I am going to tell you, uh, like, I'm being so purposely vague on this. Okay. I'm going to tell you about one of the most interesting men that has ever lived, a chap called Robert Smalls, but I don't really want to reveal too much until we do part two. So is that enough? I mean, when I, when you said one of the most interesting men that you've ever come across, I thought this was going to be really embarrassing and it was going to be, and um, this is your life. And somebody was going to come in and it turns out that you're not in your house. You'd actually built a set of your house yeah. that I can see on Zoom, but it's actually, and you walk in the door behind me and you'd hand me the book and it'd be me, but it's Robert Smalls. Yeah, I'd hand you the book and I would just go, uh, Neil, would you carry that over there? Because uh, Dave's getting a, this is your life thing. <laughs> Thanks a million for that. You're welcome, um, you're welcome. I trust you implicitly. Five series have told me if you say he's an interesting life, I, I trust you. Oh, look, I, 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 you know me. I would not let you down. And the lady we're going to talk to is the author of a book called Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from... Will I go on? I will. Escape from Slavery to Union Hero. Kate Lindbury is her name. Okay, right. One, he's uh, he's good enough to have uh, had a book written about him. Yeah. And that is an epic title. Like, those two things are poles apart. Slavery to Union here. Like, it was Dave Moore and his escape from Port Marnock to Dunabate. <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult out here in North County Dublin. You don't understand. <laughs> to go from suburb to suburb is so hard. Okay, you've, you've, uh, yeah, yeah, I certainly am on board with this. So let's, let's go with Robert Smalls in the second half. However, this is my final episode of this season. So what I decided to do, Neil, if it's okay with you, is 
it's a, it'll be a bit punchier than usual. Okay, yeah. What I've done is I've compiled all of the facts that I didn't use in other episodes for reasons of I you know I I compiled stuff for an episode that didn't happen or I didn't have time in part one or ooh that might work in season six and I'll probably regret giving you these facts now but I'm okay. just go for it and give you the because these are the kinds of things that I think our listeners will appreciate because we drop fact nuggets all the way along. Yeah. We're like, you know, Ronald McDonald trying to get Hansel and Gretel into some kind of McDonald's and we're dropping fact nuggets. These are ones you'll take with you to the pub, which I think are the best kind of facts. Okay, hit me. Number one, if India and China each lost, tragically, one billion people, each of them, they still be the two most populous nations on earth. That's just too many people, isn't it? I don't know. I'm like, that's incredible. 1.4 billion each, you know, give or take. Yeah. The next most populous country, the US, 339 million. If Ireland had that many people, I know those places are much larger geographically, sure, yeah, right? Yeah. But I would, I, you'd never be right, would you? You'd always be nervous. Just <laughs> you, Could you trust any Irish administration with a billion and a half people, <laughs> knowing full well that if a billion went missing, they'd still be top of the tree? Yeah. No. Wouldn't be great, would it? No. And we'll stick on that topic for the second one, which is, you know, I love languages. Yes. And I, I speak a few, but I just love them. I find them so intriguing. But one sixth of the world's living languages are spoken in one country. Okay. I, I think I know this. You see, there are some of these, I think Neil Delamere has, has got such a big fact brain that I'm not surprised when he says, I think I know this. So go ahead. What country do you think it is? Is the capital Port Moresby? Is it... Papua New Guinea. It is Papua New Guinea, Neil wow. Delamere. I give you a round of applause. Yes, Papua New Guinea. Right now, it has eight hundred and forty languages in it, wow. right? which wow. is amazing. However, Indonesia has seven hundred and twelve languages. But here's the difference, right? Right. There are two point six languages in Indonesia per million inhabitants. Okay. So take a million inhabitants in Indonesia; they will have two point six languages between them. In Papua New Guinea, there are 94 languages per million inhabitants. Wow. The road signs must be massive. <laughs> 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 they must be absolute. When you're getting out of the airport, like there's thousands of thousands. Or, t- or taking Junction 9 on the M50. Just yeah, like, yeah. okay, this is going to take the, a while, the- kids. But the airport ones you know where it says uh, Conduir a gauche yeah. so, And then it says Drive on the left <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Sh- Surely I don't know what it is in German <laughs> Surely just right you outside the airport Links fahren Links fahren There must be There must be just <laughs> Rotating signs It would take you ages Wow that's that's amazing Isn't All I know about uh, Papua New Guinea Apart from the language thing Languages yeah, yeah. Um, Is that be- it's, it's because it's so um, Inhospitable In terms of the the hugely it's hugely forested and hugely uh, um the, there's very uh, what's the word I'm looking for <laughs> inhospitable inhospitable you want language help you <laughs> <laughs> man unable to express himself in one language it's the one he's he's had in his brain since he was born it's like an insult to the people of that particular place is, that yeah. I did that so badly and mangled <laughs> one language that badly. <laughs> Um, there. Okay, 
the valleys are isolated because the uh, the terrain is inhospitable. It's very heavily forested, gotcha. huge amount of jungle, and uh, so tribes and groups of people can be quite isolated so they develop their own languages their own languages yes brilliant, brilliant. Okay. yes no, I think you're probably right uh, the most venomous remember in the first episode of this season we did chat with Mark Vins who stings yep. himself and well, doesn't sting himself but allows himself to be stung and bitten by venomous creatures and whatever okay. the most venomous spider on earth is the Australian funnel web spider yes its last confirmed kill of a human mm. was more than 40 years ago Wow. Anti-venom, Neil. Anti-venom. Ah. So we have stopped its deadliness. It is still the most venomous spider on Earth, but we've prevented its deadliness by creating this incredible anti-venom that stops people dying. Do you think it's it's evolved? Do you think it's evolving other ways to kill humans? I mean, like, (laughs) if there's any element of that family that's gotten the taste for human murder like is there ever a chance to instead of putting on your flip-flop you'll see a funnel web just screwing the barrel onto a long ridge you know i i'm not sure from an evolutionary point of view yeah yeah. there's much of for them to gain by assassinating humans i'm just gonna you know yeah i think think we're quite useful to them i mean that's what that's what they want you to think until (laughs) they take over and the rise of the funnel webs yeah again you probably know this but which is older, Oxford University, from which we've had many guests, mm. or the Aztec Empire? I mean, I wouldn't ask the question if, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. If, well, it must be Oxford University then, because... Not only is it Oxford University, Neil, but Oxford is University it? is almost 400 years older than the Aztec Empire. The first evidence of teaching at Oxford is 1096. What was there to learn in 1096? <laughs> Surely, how to draw those really ornate first letters of any page on a book. <laughs> that was the entire course. 1096. 1096. And the Aztec Empire was 1428. So 1066 is William the Conqueror, isn't it? So um, I suppose they were writing the Doomsday Book in the years after William the Conqueror. Or William the Bastard, as he was actually known as yes, well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Married to a tiny woman. I think her name was Matilda or something, wasn't it? Um <laughs> I think it was. Anyway, listen, <laughs> okay, that's okay. that's a that's a different documentary and grant structure ago, Dave. It is, it is, but it is. People were learning in Oxford as, as far 1096, as 1096. Yeah. Wow, that must really annoy people in Cambridge, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, they definitely win that battle. Um, this is incredible. So we know the numbers when we get to space are just enormous and they're hard to comprehend, right? Okay, mm. so in the Milky Way galaxy, yeah, there are between 100... And 400 billion stars. Okay. So let's give it its upper limit just for the sake of the conversation. Let's say there are approximately 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Are you now going to say if you took away 399 billion, it would still be the biggest galaxy (laughs) that can be seen from India or China? No, but I am going to tell you there are 10 times as many trees on Earth, Neil. There are Three trillion trees on Earth, which is a very difficult sentence for an Irish person to say. <laughs> and there's 400 billion stars yeah. as the upper limit in the Milky Way, which if I just look online is the same number of stars in the reviews for our podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
which yes. is very interesting. Uh, we're aiming for three trillion, but at some point we'll get there. Right now, we're happy with four hundred billion. That's that's okay. That that okay. many stars, um, and actually, st- trees are incredible, right? So for sixty million years, there was no bacteria, no fungus, no nothing that mm. decomposed trees. So they just got crushed by the weight of other dead trees, and that's where we get ninety percent of our coal. <laughs> trees are older than bacteria and fungus. Yeah. Now, you wouldn't think that. You would think you the wouldn't. smaller the thing, the thing exists longer. Yeah. In the same way that people think, I should be older than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you. When you see us side by side, I mean. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the question is, so we weren't around then either, right? No, obviously. Oh, no, obviously not. So no. when a big tree fell in yeah. the forest on an older tree, yeah. Or a tree of even at the same age. But there was no one around to hear it. <laughs> Did the bacteria, Did the bacteria tell a joke? joke? <laughs> Does anybody know what's the next thing? <laughs> wow, okay. So trees just crush themselves and that's where it's, we get coal and from. And that's where we get coal from, yeah. Speaking of things that are older than other things, dinosaurs are older than grass. So, you know, sometimes you see these kind of artists impressions of what life was like in the Cretaceous on the savannah yeah. yeah absolutely not absolutely nothing tarmac they were walking around tarmac yeah most of it was tarmac it was the red tarmac you know the stuff they make the cycle lanes out of yeah okay yeah. right yeah and the bouncy stuff in playgrounds so the kids don't completely scold themselves they? they had that obviously yeah, yeah. everywhere yeah but, loose yeah. shippings kill the dinosaurs is that what you're saying <laughs> i mean to be very heavy on tarmac they would be very very heavy um <laughs> You'd imagine there'd be an awful lot of potholes. So there was no grass. Was there decking? No, there was no decking. What there were, unfortunately, were... Trees and timber, surely. Surely with trees falling over. I mean, all you'd have to do is spray it down with some sort of moss-resistant substance. Preservative. There was no moss. There was no moss. It was fine. There was no, there was no moss. There was no grass. What was there if dinosaurs were just walking around? Bushes and trees. Really? Yeah. No grass. So 55 million years ago... AstroTurf. Or, no, even <laughs> AstroTurf. We found grass fossils that are 55 million years old. But the dinosaurs lived from 275 million to 65 million years ago. So there's a 10 million year gap between when the last dinosaurs existed and grass began. 10 million years! They missed grass. They had no yeah. even concept of grass. Grass was coming down the track. They didn't yeah, know that. They didn't know. They didn't have a clue. And what, when they were bored... Yeah. As kids, and they were lying there. What did they try and uh, make a whistle out of? Pterodactyls. <laughs> Put a hole in its wing there. Throw it off a cliff. You'll <laughs> hear a whistling as it's... Like, but did you ever do that? Were you trying to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go... It was very, yeah. very exciting. Also, I used to eat a lot of grass as a, as a younger man. Constantly just sitting there. You didn't have enough Rizzlers? No, not like that, Neil. Why? What? What? Well, lying on the grass with you know my friends when I was playing finished playing football, I would just constantly be just eating yeah, the grass. Dogs do that to deliberately make themselves sick because they they know something is wrong with themselves. What dogs, is wrong dogs with you? Are, dogs have weak stomachs. I can consume cow no. levels of grass. I would chew the cud for days. <laughs> Dave is 50% ruminant. Um, <laughs> there's an old Irish phrase that says, you can do that until the Daves come home. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> I jumped over the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is wrong with you? Then? Like, no, no, sorry. A dog 
which we both love, but are relatively simple creatures, mm. are, are essentially more clued in and more logical than no, you because they not... have a reason to eat grass, whereas you're just eating it like some sort of simpleton. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, I resent, the, on behalf of any grazing animals... Oh, we're going to get letters, aren't we? I resent, I resent that you are putting the canines among us in a higher intelligence. Part. I mean, elephants are very intelligent. They graze on leaves. They're meant to graze on leaves. <laughs> Everyone says that we should have a more organic diet and we should be eating more greens. I was doing it as a kid. It just happened to be the lawn. Of my neighbor's back garden. How did Dave die of insecticide poisoning? <laughs> Those insecticides were locked up in the shed, except for the time that they were spraying the grass. Well, I mean, he clearly didn't lick the grass. He's not a complete. Oh no, he's dead. <laughs> you know, though, I sometimes have to tell you how irrelevant we are and how this makes me actually feel really satisfied and content because yeah. we're just a happy accident yeah. in a Goldilocks planet and all these things, whatever, right? Well, the Listen. numbers of downloads of the podcast would, would back you up on how irrelevant we are. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't specifically mean you and myself. I mean, oh, okay. we, we as humans as, as an existence. Okay. But listen to this, right? Our sun, as we've established, is one of about 400 billion in the Milky Way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the entire solar system, the mm-hmm. sun makes up 99.85% of the mass. Wow. Almost all of the mass of the solar system is the sun. And we're here on our little planet going, eh, my coffee was cold. Eh, that guy pulled out in front of me in traffic. Eh, it was rainy today. You don't matter. Get over yourself. You are so, you are less than 0.1% of the mass of one solar system in a galaxy of 400 billion stars in there are trillions of galaxies in the observable universe you don't matter and it's amazing and that ladies and gentlemen is why dave is not the life coach that you want (laughs) (laughs) just a man screaming at you while licking the ground oh there's no there's no grass (laughs) but i'll do my best while screaming at how trivial and insignificant your life is put that in a tea towel Nobody, oh. people have la- laugh, life, love, or whatever the fuck that is. What is it? <laughs> laugh, <laughs> love, live, 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 laugh, love. I think. And then just Dave's wall of insignificance. <laughs> oh my God, I want a wall of insignificance so much. <laughs> the wall of insignificance. Who's going to do the signs for that? The fellow who does the road signs in Papua New Guinea. Those lads are used to writing that much stuff on one surface. Wow, that's a lot of amazing and deeply depressing stuff at the same time. But I suppose you... You can know you can view it as liberating. We don't matter, so we should just be nice to each other because we're here. That's for sure. kind of how I feel. Like we okay. are such an accident. We are yeah. so fortunate to be here. Appreciate yeah. everything. Appreciate the rain, the traffic, and the cold coffee is kind of my other point. Yeah. Again, older than I love older than things. You'll you'll notice a pattern here. Sharks. Yes. Older than the rings of Saturn. Like what? Okay. <laughs> like I, I I can't even say it without freaking out. How old are sharks? The rings of Saturn are 400 million years old and definitely no older than that. We know this from people whose brains are far bigger than ours. They have dated the rings of Saturn. They are no more than 400 million. They're actually, they're quite recent. I'd imagine that it's the opposite of trees where you cut the trees up and count the rings. Do you... (laughs) Put the rings back together? I don't know. Okay, 400 million years old. Sharks. Sharks. 450 million years old. Okay, where are sharks on the timeline of grass and dinosaurs, do we know? Oh, like, grass is so young. young. So, 
Sharks, 450 million years. Yeah. Dinosaurs between 275 and 65. They lived for so long, by the way. Sorry, the, yeah. the dinosaurs, right? Yeah. 275 million to 65 million. Grass, mm. 55 million. So sharks are 400 million years older, older than, than grass. grass. Yeah. Wow. But I've never gotten shark burns. <laughs> and I've never chewed on sharks. No. No. God, they're just such perfect predators, aren't they? Yeah. Imagine, imagine, imagine designing something. Let's call it the universe designing it. Yeah, yeah, or right. if you want to believe in an intelligent creator. Sure, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Look to you, whatever you're into, right? But imagine getting something so right that you just went, I don't have to change this for yeah. 400. Imagine Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone and there was no <laughs> other iPhones after that. <laughs> it, they're the opposite of inbuilt the opposite. obsolescence. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, okay. Now, look, I haven't done, usually I like to have a bit of research in terms of, as you'll see, the rest of the facts, I've, I've kind of got numbers and stuff. I don't have for this, but I, I'm kind of half relying on you. Okay. It took humans longer to mm. go from bronze swords mm. to steel swords than to go from steel swords Iron to sword, nuclear yeah. weapons. Wow. Everything just gets quicker then, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. There you go. That's that Moore's law about like every 18 months computing power doubles. But I mean, that's computing power. But put that back into like any kind of industrial progress. Quicker, 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 quicker. So what's the next one? How do I even know I'm talking to you and it's not AI? I don't know what you are talking about. Are you a robot? I don't know. Do they eat grass? <laughs> Can you please find the pictures of bicycles? <laughs> <laughs> to unlock the next level of Dave. I have all the computing power in the world, but do not know what a traffic light is. <laughs> you know uh, cars. We like talking about cars. We were doing the birth of Benz thing, right? Yeah. God, you're really hitting me with a machine gun. I know. It's a machine you, gun like, level of facts. We're getting okay. towards the end. We're getting towards the end here. So, you know that she's the person who took the drive in the Benz car, first Benz car, Mercedes Benz, committed Carl Benz and all that, right? Yeah. The, the pinnacle of the Mercedes-Benz lineup nowadays is the S-Class Mercedes, right? Yes. It is huge. It is a big floating barge. It is 17 feet long. Is it? And it? Yeah. 17 feet. And it weighs two tons. More than just over two tons, right? It's okay. huge. And we all know, if you think about it, next time you, you walk past a big banking CEO's car or whatever, you look at it and actually just walk walk it and pace it as you walk past it. It's like five more than five meters long. Do you know that a manta ray, Neil, is 23 feet long and weighs more than three tons? So if I lay on the ground in front of a Mercedes S-Class, yeah. the length of me and the S-Class would be about the size of a manta ray. Can you really open up a manta ray on the motorway in Germany? <laughs> Not on the Autobahn, no. Yeah. On the Mantaban. <laughs> <laughs> Are they that big? Absolutely enormous. 23 feet long. Is that including tons. tail? Yes, but I mean, still, you know, the tail yeah, is but... significant. It's not, not completely skinny in something as big as that. Absolutely phenomenal. And my final one for you, Neil, is a question. The turning circle must be very hard on a Manta Ray. <laughs> like... You'd have to have the beep, 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 beeps and that, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd actually need your own fella in a flat cap and a newspaper rolled up under his arm to be swimming alongside you. <laughs> Lockhart, just... Lockhart. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my final one is a question which you may or may not know the answer, but it's the kind of thing that Neil Delamar will usually surprise me with. And, and okay. What is the most effective 
predator of moose. I do know this. See? I just—I swear to everyone listening, I'm disappointed. I'm not feeding him these things. I'm not sending him a... You know the way this whole podcast works. Oh. One of us is supposed to be in the dark. But here he is with his little smug, awfully heading him saying, <laughs> I, do, I do know this, yeah. Uh, maybe maybe I don't know this. Actually, it's probably between two. But the only reason you'd ask me is because that's to be something weird, right? So, oh no, now it's between three. Okay, no, I don't know. <laughs> Well, what were the three? I'm intrigued. No, it's actually between four. Hold on. Oh, no, hold on. All right. So a first one, I would say, I was going to say polar bear. But then I think I've never seen a documentary where a polar bear eat a moose. I've never Fair. seen it. Right. Because they prefer the heavier desserts. Um, <laughs> that's the moose we're talking about. Is that? Is it Italians? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> I am my family's most effective predator of the moose. No. Mama, this is Angel's Delight. This is not moose made the way, <laughs> traditional way. It's made with a powder, Mama. Is it disgusting? <laughs> Apologies to our Italian friends. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, so not polar bear. So it's no. moose moose. Um, by the way, you should you need to look up Jerry Sadowich. Have you ever seen him? <laughs> a famous, famous comedian. Uh, a really on the edge Scottish comedian who uh, famously opened his uh, set in Canada with good evening moose fuckers and was assaulted <laughs> immediately. <laughs> they can't take themselves that seriously, Canadians. Come on. I realise this podcast is now just ascended into Neil guessing for a long time. So it, it's, it's, a, it's not humans. No, uh, it's not humans. No, wolves. No. Um, no, go on. I don't know. Go on. The most effective predator of moose is killer whales. What? Yeah. Jesus, if you were a moose, you'd be surprised by that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, no, you wouldn't. Well, because where are they moose, swimming from, too? Islands dive. in Canada. Yeah, and they'd also dive for food. They dive 20 feet down for food. And when they're down there, along comes Orca. If you were, if you were just swimming or yeah. diving in Canada, and mm. you looked across and went, I wonder have I got my oxygen level ready and right and all the rest. <laughs> and you looked across, and there was a moose, nose to nose with you. <laughs> and on what? the other side of you, travelling its behind him is a hungry orca. orca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the f- Why did they have to die for food? I'd imagine because the food they eat normally is really scarce, because somebody has been eating the grass, Dave! <laughs> Canadian grass is so delicious in the Northern Territories. I can't get enough of it. I just go out in the boot to get some grass. <laughs> um, wow, so what do moose eat underwater, do we know? Well, I, again, I haven't done enough research because these are the quick facts that I've been compiling okay. All, okay. All, all series long. But my understanding of it when I did my quick research on it was there are grasses, there are plants, there are things yeah. that they can eat under the water and they like them and they dive down and they're very, very adept swimmers and they're obviously something that big to get down under the water. It's not even just a case of, okay, I'm swimming from one island to another. They're yeah. diving 20 feet down. But unfortunately, a lot of them meet their demise when Mr. Orca comes along and goes, this is a happy day for me. That must be Christmas. It must be around Christmas like, or a seriously. big... Imagine imagine when Mammy Orca and Daddy Orca come back for the first time to the baby baby Orcas and they're all like, well, it's fish again, is it? Oh, it's seal again, is it, lads? It's venison. It's venison. This is going to absolutely blow your mind. <laughs> Bullwinkle. I've killed Bullwinkle. <laughs> so there you go. There is a compilation of turbo facts that I've been storing up all season long. And I'm I'm tempted now to do this at the end of every 
season and just for my episode i'm just gonna throw on whatever i've got left it was like a bren gun of facts i could not hide from the high velocity parabellum <laughs> trivia that were flying out of your gob that was fantastic well, look, trust me, it's going to get even more amazing in part two. Kate Lindbury is going to join us. She's the author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to union hero. Wait until you hear about this guy. On the way in part two. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? And Neil, we are now joined by Kate Linebury, the author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union Hero. And what I told Neil in part one, I kept it very vague, Kate. I basically said, we're going to talk about a man with possibly one of the most interesting lives ever. Would you say (laughs) that's an accurate, broad description of the story? Absolutely. I mean, when I first heard the story, I was just completely blown away and couldn't believe that more people didn't know about it. So I completely agree. And what you said there, that's exactly what the kind of mission statement of this podcast is. These are stories we should know about, but we probably don't. And I think Robert Smalls' life fits into this. So let's go on a little bit of a journey, Neil, and learn all about Robert. So, Kate, let's start at the beginning. Like, he was born 1839. To those of us who haven't followed it, you know, in 1839 in the US, what kind of world was he born into? 
Yeah, so Robert was born in Beaufort, South Carolina, um, which was a wealthy southern town on Port Royal Island, which is um, it's one of the largest sea islands uh, on the southeast Atlantic coast of the United States. So it's about 75 miles south of Charleston. Uh, Beaufort was very wealthy because they had gotten all of their um, money from growing Sea Island cotton, which was very silky, and so people wanted it. But of course, to grow and harvest that crop, they had to enslave thousands of Black men, women, and children on plantations who did backbreaking work in unbelievable um, and unbearable conditions. Yeah, they were treated as pieces of property and, uh, you know, often faced brutal punishments. And the importation of slaves had been banned in the U.S. by 1808, but the slave trade was still happening within the country. And the South particularly was absolutely completely dependent on slavery as an institution. And so when he was born then, he was born into slavery. Is that right? He was. And what would that have meant then for, say, his did he have, his mother was obviously there, but did he was his father around? Was he did he have a family he was born into? And being born into slavery, what would that have meant for a child? Yeah, so his mother was actually forty three years old when she had it, which is, uh, you know, an advanced age, especially at that time. And she had him alone in the slave quarters behind the big, you know, wealthy, beautiful home in town. Her owner, I hate to use that word, but that's the appropriate word. Her owner was a wealthy plantation owner. She was fortunate in some ways because she worked as a house slave. So the conditions were not as grueling physically as they would be if you were a plantation slave. But because Lydia, Robert's mother, was owned by Henry McKee, when Robert was born, he automatically became Henry McKee's property. Gotcha. Um, And he would be raised in that house as a house slave. And of course, at this time, there was also great fear over slave revolts. The time, I think, he was born in 1839. It was 1822 when Denmark Vesey was hanged for plotting a a very large slave revolt. There had been another famous one, Nat Turner's Rebellion in Virginia a few years later. During the revolt, they killed 50 whites. And then in the aftermath, as retribution, 200 blacks were killed. So very tense time. So in Buford, Robert would have been... The, the town would have had an arsenal and it had a slave patrol to protect the whites. And at what point then would Robert have had to start working and what would he have done? Well, as a kid, he would have been expected to do um, to do lots of uh, smaller chores. He was particularly liked by Henry McKee. You asked about his father and I know frequently slaves were, their fathers were oftentimes the masters. But in this case, we don't think that's true only because... It's a long story, but the way that Lydia basically cared for Henry McKee since um, he was a baby, and so it would be unlikely that he would turn his attentions towards her. Sure. So Robert's father was unknown and still is, but he worked closely for Henry McKee. Um, He would go hunting with him. He would collect firewood for him. He would clean his boots. And then as he got a little bit older, he would take on harder tasks within the house. But he was only 12 years old when he was sent away to Charleston. Okay, so this is where, Neil, this is where the story starts to get particularly interesting. So, Why, why was he sent to Charleston, I suppose, is my yeah, first well, 12, question. Exactly, yeah, 12 years old. Why is he sent to Charleston and what is in Charleston for Robert to do? Yeah, so we don't know exactly whether Lydia, his mother, asked McKee to send him there because Charleston was a larger city and there were more opportunities for enslaved people to learn. They had more freedom in some ways because they were um, moving throughout the city 
but um, but it might have been that McKee thought he could make more money um, from Robert, sending him to Charleston where he was hired out. This was a practice where a slave would be sent to Charleston. He would get different jobs. And of course, that money that he earned would go back to his master. And Charleston had a very peculiar requirement for all of these slaves because there were actually 3,400 free blacks living in Charleston. Some of them owned slaves as well, which a lot of people don't realize. Right. So the enslaved people had to wear badges, metal badges that said what their work was. And it was a basically an annual license. You know, and it was a much bigger city. I mean, there were 43,000 people there, half of them enslaved. Naked men, women, and children were still being sold um, in open slave markets at this time. Some of the houses included iron gates with sharp spikes to protect against potential slave revolts. And, you know, he's a 12-year-old kid on his own here. Um, he would have gone to li- he lived with relatives of McKee's in the slave quarters, but he was pretty much on his own which is just heartbreaking when you think really about it. It really is, yeah. Listen, I have a 14-year-old boy and an 11-year-old boy, so right in the middle of that, I can just imagine if one of them was sent to this kind of situation. But the sea begins to come into Robert's life at this point. He, When he goes to Charleston Harbour, as you said, is, is a huge port, very important port uh, in, in the Carolinas. How did he take to the sea and being a seaman? Yeah. Well, it took him a while to get there. He was first, he did odd jobs, like he was a lamplighter. He was a waiter for a time. And then he was actually working the horses that were hoisting cargo off off of ships. But he was very comfortable around the water. And so he began working as a sailor on a schooner. And it was not until he was 22 that he actually joined the famous planter. But during that time, he got married very young. Um, He was 17 when he met his wife, Hannah. And it was, of course, illegal for slaves to marry, but they did get permission from their owners. And so it was an unofficial ceremony. Um, Yeah, he was married at 17 and he soon had a young daughter. Yeah, it took him a while until um, he became the sailor. But then I think his career soared because he was so, if you can call it a career, soared just because he was so gifted on the water. He found it very easy to navigate Charleston's shifting sandbars and the twisting and turning inlets and rivers that fed into it. I've just done the maths in my head there, Dave. So you said 1839, you said he was born, and yep. 22 he is at this stage when he joins the planter. Is that, That's a, that's a, a ship. So, ship. So yep. if that's 1861... Things are about to get fairly tasty in American war, if I if I remember my history. You're, we're heading into the Civil War period now. Absolutely. I mean, he was only part of the crew of the planner for a while before war broke out, which was in April 1861. So he, right before the war, he started as a deckhand on the ship, but there were three white officers, private officers on the ship, who really saw his skills and they promoted him to wheelman, which basically meant that he was the boat pilot, but they wouldn't give that name to an enslaved man. And so then when war broke out, the Confederacy started leasing the planter as a transport. So they moved personnel and ordnance and supplies throughout various locations in and around Charleston Harbor. And the crew at that time also delivered dispatches. They um, helped lay mines in nearby rivers. They surveyed sandbars. So they were doing a lot of stuff, although they weren't officially part of the Confederacy. And wouldn't it have been the case that Robert then was so gifted that he was given the opportunity to be at the shoulder of the captain? He was able to learn, even surreptitiously learn things that perhaps would have been way above his station, but he was able to do that because he was given access. 
Absolutely. And he learned, um, which would later become important, but he learned all the signals that the Confederates used to signal one another with torches or with flags throughout the different stations that they had within the harbor. And so that would be very important in him escaping. Yeah. So before we get to the escaping, the logic of this would be that it's how the Confederate uh, ships and, as you said, the different ports and different uh, pl- places around would be able to know that's a Confederate ship and not something we need to attack. In other words, yes. it would be very important to know these signals and flags and, and the timing of them. What's what's the breakdown of the of the crew, by the way, at this point, in terms of slaves versus, um, you said, private um, officers? Yeah, there were three white officers on board. That would include the, the white captain. Um, and then the rest of the men, there were um, seven total enslaved people on board. And they would have been, of course, Robert was the pilot, he was essentially the pilot. He was the wheelman. And then the others were steam engineers and deckhands. Okay. Okay. So we get to this point, Neil, where Robert is learning more and more about the ship, about life on a ship, but also, as we said, these hidden things that he probably shouldn't be picking up, but he's very smart and very clever. And he hatches a plan, Kate, to... He, he realizes he can actually sail his way to freedom, but there are a lot of risks involved. So how does the plan work? What is Robert's plan at this point? Yeah, well, he had been looking for years to find a way to escape because he was so terrified. At this point, he had two children and a wife, and he was terrified of them being sold off to someone else, and then he would never see them again. And he'd always been looking for a way to escape, but it was very hard, especially if you had a family in tow with a young infant who could cry and then alert slave patrols. He had also, I mean, Robert was an incredibly ambitious and clever person, as you said. So he had created a deal with Hannah's owner, his wife's owner, to try to um, pay for her, buy her and his daughter for $800, which was a massive amount of money um, for an enslaved man, which he would have made by getting a small portion of what he was earning. His owner allowed him that. But there was no way that he was going to make the $800 and also... The man could have easily reneged on the on the deal. Of course. So one day they're they're um, on the ship. The white captain has left, and one of the other enslaved men puts a wide brimmed straw hat on Robert and starts laughing because Robert and the white captain are very stocky, and so they share that physical trait. And so he starts saying, "You look like the captain," and the light bulb goes off for Robert. <laughs> See where we're going now, Neil. Yeah. Yeah, light bulb before light bulbs were invented. That's how clever the man (laughs) is. (laughs) Okay, so the similarity between him and the captain is what kind of, as you said, you know, sets off this idea in his head that he can he's figured out a way that he can perhaps get this ship to a point where it's out of Confederate waters and therefore can be in a, a position where when he hands it over to the U.S. Navy, that he will then become a free man. But before he does that. He has to get through all of these difficulties. So the three white officers, they do leave the ship every night. They do. They weren't supposed to. But in keeping with the attitudes of most white Southerners, they did not. They were not particularly worried about leaving the ship to an enslaved crew. They didn't think they were smart enough to take it. They didn't think because the ship was moored next to a Confederate general's headquarters that anyone <laughs> would have the nerve to actually seize it. Um, so there were a lot of factors like that working in their favor. They underestimated them. Yeah. And in May 1862, Robert decided it's time to execute the plan. So what did he do? Yeah. Well, there are a couple factors that made it made him choose that particular day. And, and luck was always with him. I mean, I think 
the likelihood of this plan actually working was so slim. But for instance, the Confederate Guard boat that usually monitored the entrance to the harbor was out of commission. That was a huge, you know, um, worked in their favor. Charleston was about to be put under martial law the following day because they were anticipating a Union attack at any minute. So security would have been heightened. And then the crew had just picked up four massive cannons that day that they were moving around. The Confederates were trying to take guns and put them in the most helpful locations, given that they were uh, missing a lot of equipment and a lot had been damaged. So it was the right time to do it. But their first problem came when one of the white officers decided he was going to stay on the ship that night. Right. And so Robert was prepared to kill him if he needed to. But at the last minute, he decided to leave and, and saved his bacon, as one of the enslaved crew said in a newspaper account. Right. So they're all gone. So then Robert is free with the rest of his enslaved crew to actually take the planter. Yeah. Well, they, they had a couple crew members who panicked at the last minute and left. So fortunately, they had asked a few other men to join them for reasons unknown. But they had enough men, fortunately, to handle the boat. So at about three o'clock, they sort of got the wood going on the steamer, but they didn't realize that a, a wind, a heavy wind had come in. And so the smoke started pouring out over the city. And they were sure at that point that they were going to be caught before they had even started. <laughs> but they raised two of the flags, the South Carolina flag and a Confederate flag to help with their cover story. And there was even a Confederate guard standing just 50 yards away and a police detective who later said that they saw the ship leaving, but never thought anything about it. Yeah. And so then the incredible thing, too, is that in order to pick up the women and children that they were also bringing on board, they actually had to backtrack to a wharf that was further north. So they were going the opposite way that they should have been on a regular <laughs> mission. So that also could have, um, if anyone had noticed, would have destroyed their plans. But it didn't. It just speaks it to how much they underestimated them. People saw a ship moving and assumed that the only people who could be in command of such a ship would be white people. And that played into the lads being able to get away. Exactly, exactly. And so they had 16 people on board. There were numerous instances of ships passing them. No one stopped them. They kept going. They got about 4.15, they got to Fort Sumter, which was, it was just getting light. And they only had a narrow channel to pass through because the Confederates had put a floating log boom across so that the Union ships couldn't get into the harbor. So they had to go right next to Fort Sumter, which had these massive guns. And there were so many instances like the white captain had realized he had gotten to the wharf and realized that the ship was missing. But luckily, he did not sound the alarm right away. He started asking questions. So there are all these things that happened along the way that they just got so lucky and in fact, when they passed Fort Sumter, the sentry yelled, blow the damn Yankees to hell or bring one of them in. And Robert uh, kept in character and said, aye, aye, and kept going. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> like, what, was he dressed like the captain? Was this part of, of the escape? Only the, the hat. Right. Um, but they had the smokestack of the planner, uh, the steamer, kind of hid his face a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Robert knew the appropriate signal when they got to um, leaving the harbor to give. It was a full moon, which did not work in their favor, but there was a fog that night and they had timed it just so it would be still, you know, just light, barely light when they got to Fort Sumter. So it was very difficult to see. To see at that hour, yeah. Okay, so they go past Fort Sumter. I mean, how long is the journey then until they they are out of Confederate waters and into somewhere approaching safety? 
Yeah, so it's about a, an eight, 10 mile journey through the harbor. They make it, but they, they're still in shock. And at any moment, even once they've passed Fort Sumter, they're expecting to be blown out of the water. But their next challenge is actually even harder because the Union ships that have been blockading Charleston Harbor are waiting there and they're going to see this Confederate ship headed right towards them and most likely are going to fire on them and kill them. So Robert had anticipated that he had his crew lower the the flags and they hoisted a white bedsheet. But but even the timing of that, I mean, to to lower your flags at the point where the Confederate army and navy are no you know they're they've assumed okay these guys are fine let them through we're no longer looking at them so now they can lower the flag and then raise the white flag the bed sheet in the right time before the you the union ships go well hang on a second we're, we're gonna blow you out of the water i mean it's meticulously planned it is it is and like i said very unlikely that it would actually work and, you know, and the fog was rolling in um, even heavier at that moment. And so he was sure that they were not going to see that white flag. And in fact, the the ship that they were heading towards, the Union ship, had all men prepared to fire on the planter when at the last minute the captain noticed this bed sheet wow. and stopped. Okay, so he's managed to then get out of the Confederate scenario. He's managed to get to the Union ships. Is this it? Has he? Is he now free? He would not technically be free. And in fact, they had one other close call because he didn't hear the captain tell him to go alongside his ship. And so the captain threatened to blow him out of the water was the words that he used we have in the Union Dispatch. But technically, no, because he was actually still all enslaved people were still considered what they called contraband at the time. So Mm. they were not technically free. But the union recognized Robert's skills and they wanted to put him to work right away. And so in all essence, you know, he was essentially free. Okay, so the the mission was a success. He, the other crew, the men they picked up and their families had managed. How many people do you know were on the boat when they eventually reached the union ships? It was 16. 16 people. Wow. Yeah, and that include yeah. Robert's wife as well as his um, young daughter who was four and an infant son. Okay, so as you said, the union then they see the value in somebody like because I mean I'm trying to think about this in 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 the concept of the time we're in I mean I presume this story is big news and I also presume it's handled in two very different ways because I mean the northern the the union newspapers would be full of praise of these daring men who pulled off this incredible mission and I'm sure the opposite was exactly the way it was handled uh, in the south so what was that situation like? Yeah, so the Confederates actually put a $2,000 bounty on Robert's head, which was... That's a lot of money, yeah. It's a lot of money back then. And um, and he was brave enough to return to that area to continue to work for the Union, which I think says a lot about him. And of course, the three white officers were put on trial um, for letting them take the boat. But it also, what I was surprised to learn was, you know, we tend to think that in the North, people had different attitudes, but... At the time, people were still debating whether black Americans would fight for their freedom, whether they were smart enough to take a ship out of the harbor. Yeah. Um, So it was really, you know, he really helped shake up people's ideas of what was possible. But there was a lot of praise from the North. What did he do then for the Union? Did he, was he a mariner for the Union? Was he a spy for the Union? What did he do for the Union Army? Yeah, well, um, he kept acting as basically what he was doing now as a wheelman, even though he was essentially a pilot, transporting troops throughout the harbor, etc. And uh, 
but through um, a couple years later, he was actually, he became the first black captain of an army vessel because he was awarded the title after the white captain of the planter panicked during an attack and hid. At this point, the uh, ship had been made into a, was operating through coal. And so the uh, captain hid in the steamer's coal bunk bunker. <laughs> and so Robert stepped up and took control of the ship and got it to safety. And um, that position brought him $150 a month which was as much as a Union major earned. Yeah, I mean, this this was the first in U.S. Navy history, the first time there was a black captain. I mean, this was a proper moment in military history. Yeah, and it was really for the service that came after delivering the planter. I mean, I know that helped, of course, and influenced them. But it was really, you know, they were sending a message that this man had stepped up. And, and I think it, it says a lot about who Robert Smalls was, that he, in the middle of a crisis, you know, he... Because if he had been caught on that ship or they had, you know, um, sunk the ship, you know, the Confederates wouldn't have treated him nicely no. and he would have been a nice prize for them to have. So he not only saved everyone on board, but he saved himself as well. So he's rewarded by bringing the ship to the Union uh, Navy. He's then given this captain's job, which comes with a hefty salary. He has money. And Neil, in this situation, I think it kind of gets a little bit like a Hollywood movie. Right. Because what he does with the money and his success back in Buford, South Carolina, is just amazing. So, okay, tell us what happened there. It is. Well, he got $1,500 for for his part in the seizing of the planter, which certainly helped, but it was way less than they sh he should have gotten. Congress had said he could have half of what the ship appraised for. The value, right. Um, wow. But and then he had his money from from working for the union. But he actually ended up buying the house in which he and his mother had been enslaved as house workers. Come on, oh. I mean that. As I said, that is the Hollywood moment. If you saw that in a Disney film, you go, "Okay, that's a little bit." They've overegged it there now. I think they, they've <laughs> yeah, gone a little bit yeah. too far with the symbolism of the man come good. But wow, so that, but that's a considerable amount of money. I know he didn't get what he was due, but obviously it's a huge amount of money in the 1860s, isn't it? Absolutely. It was about $45,000 today. So, I mean, at that point, you know, his family was just trying to survive. You know, they had just gotten out of slavery and had never been free before. So it, it was a lot, enough to change his life. And, and Neil, like if we ended this part of the episode now, you would be like, wow, Robert Smalls. Yes. What a guy. No, hang tight. Okay. Because there's, there's more, okay? So Robert then was not content with just buying the house that he and his mother were born in slavery in. He also wanted to improve the lives of so many black Americans, uh, in particularly in South Carolina, but all over the, the country. So what else did he do after this? Yeah, well, immediately after the war, um, when the federal government started giving back buildings that they had seized and were using them to teach the people who had you know, basically never had any education, the black enslaved people. Robert started a school for black children because they didn't have any resources. And then he went on to advocate for free compulsory education in South Carolina, which was a revolutionary idea. Like free compulsory education. I mean, something we take for granted. But at this point in the 1800s, that was genuinely revolutionary. It was. And, he, you know, he was illiterate when he sees the planner. You know, he didn't know how to read or write. So it's it's absolutely incredible what he did. And he knew the value of education. 
he always fought for that and and made sure that his children always understood the value of education as well. And they've gone on to do, you know, they went on to do amazing things and his descendants are still doing amazing things. Yeah, but he also didn't stop there. He became involved in local politics, I suppose, let's call it, but certainly South Carolina politics. He did more than that, though, because... What, he, he, what else did he do? <laughs> he decided after after being elected uh, to um, local politics, he decided to run slightly bigger than that. And Neil, he ran for Congress. He ran for Congress. He didn't get he didn't get in, though, did he? I let Kay tell you. He did. He actually served five <laughs> terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. No. Five terms. No way. Uh, like any part of his life is remarkable enough. This is going to be four films, Dave. This isn't going to yeah, be one no, film. Yeah, it's definitely a trilogy at least. Like, yeah. How so, have we not heard this story? Like I know in Ireland we've heard of um, this. Uh, some people will have heard of this. I'm doing us a disservice, but it doesn't have household name recognition in the, in the way that say Frederick Douglass would have, because Frederick Douglass came to Ireland and and did a, a kind of a, a lecture circuit here. But it is a remarkable life really is Kate and things that happened even way beyond his passing so uh, in the 1970s his house was very important yes yeah it was designated a national historic monument and it's it's actually a private home now and and recently sold for millions I mean it's a beautiful house but a national historic monument so it it can't obviously be you can't it can't be touched you can't do anything to it it has to be maintained as it is and you can live in it and do all those things but it shows you how important Robert was that the house that he bought, the house that he was born into, has become this historic monument. When I first started doing the research for the book, it was called the Henry McKee House. And in recent years, it's become the Robert Smalls House, which I love. There you go. That's brilliant. Yeah. And how well is this story? I mean, this is a how long is a piece of string question. But, you know, in your estimation, how well known is the story in America, particularly outside South Carolina? Yeah, it's gaining traction. I mean, I started doing the research on the book probably in 2015, and he was virtually unknown. But I think since then, there's been an awareness, hopefully um, in part because of the book. But I think just as people, particularly Charleston as a whole, as a city, is recognizing the role that African-Americans played in their history and and really trying to do its service. I mean, they, you know, they are, uh, tourism is their number one industry, but they're really opening it up and telling the full story now, which didn't used to happen. And I think the same is true as in Beaufort. And Barack Obama actually in 2017 recognized the whole area as somewhere very important in American history. What did he do then? Absolutely. Um, it's a, the Reconstruction Era National Monument. It's the first one. And it's right before Charleston was attacked. Um, the Union had taken over Beaufort and used that as a point of refilling ships and um, there were a lot of, of union officers in there and it became kind of a well the whites all fled at that time and they left behind 10,000 slaves and so the union tried to educate them and help them as best they could and that was really the beginning of reconstruction overall I mean we're here amazed at what sounds like a Hollywood movie and perhaps as Neil pointed out maybe even sounds like it's beyond what could be in a Hollywood movie but in terms of his impact on American history and Civil War history and the fate of black Americans. I mean, where does he rank? Where can we put him in in this story? Because he seems like he's really important and only beginning to get the recognition. Absolutely. I mean, he's I think he's up there with Frederick Douglass. Um, He was inspired by Frederick Douglass as a child. But I think, you know, he showed people that 
blacks were willing to fight. He helped convince Lincoln that blacks were willing to fight. At that point in the Union Army, they were not allowing blacks to fight. He really changed people's perceptions of, of what black Americans were willing to do for their country. And, you know, he continued that bravery and determination after the war, too. You know, he continued to fight for people and what he thought was right. He was often a bridge between black and white communities. Um, he was a genuine natural leader, I think. And we have a lot to be grateful to him for. Kate Limebury, author of Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union Hero. I highly recommend you read the book because as much as we've covered in about 30 minutes, there's a whole lot more detail and a whole lot more uh, amazing elements of this story that we don't even have time to cover. But Kate, thank you so much for coming on and telling us the amazing story. And it is, as you said at the beginning, one of these things that we probably don't know, but we really should. And now we do. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Right, welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Neil, Robert Smalls. You'll never think of those two names the same way ever again, will you? Bobby Smalls. Um, do you know sometimes when you... Okay, first of all, I didn't know the story. Second of all, it really makes you feel bad about yourself, doesn't it? That these lads did these amazing <laughs> things. And they're all they're yeah. always in their 20s. Like, he was 22. And he has the bravery to yeah. do what he did and, and, and hotwire a steamship and take it beyond... <laughs> Uh, yes, beyond his own enemies line, shall we oh. say, the Confederacy, and then to the Union, who were their enemies, and then go, hey, that, that's not, not that split second, but like you said, there's a moment where he has to figure out exactly where he is in that harbour to lower yeah. one flag and raise the other flag. It's testament to his skills as, as a navigator. But yeah, if if you'd done any one part of his story, you would have stopped. Yeah, totally, exactly. You'd, you'd hang your hat on that and go, I'm a great lad. But yeah. uh, no, he did. He kept going and did incredible things. If you or I had stolen the ship and brought it to the Union side, we would spend the rest of our lives whittling on our porch in a rocking chair, telling people about the time we stole a ship. We would certainly not run for Congress and win for five terms or whatever. So, yes, we love Mr. (laughs) Small. Okay, what have you got for me next week? It's our final week of this season. Ooh, I know you like Italian food. I know you're a bit of a... Oh, my favourite. If I say to you everything that you thought you knew about Italian food is wrong, and I have the woman who can prove it, would you be interested? What? Everything is wrong. Everything. Everything you thought you knew about Italian food. It's not going to stop you eating it, but you're wrong. I don't know if I like this. I don't want... And, and she's Italian. Okay. I'll go with it. I'll go with you. I mean, I'm not entirely convinced I want to know that everything I know about Italian food is wrong, but I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Brackets, you can still eat all the Italian food you want. Close Okay, brackets. okay, then I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, good, all right. Oh, by the way, I've put on a date in the Pleasance in Islington in London so people can get tickets to that online. Bye-bye. NeilDelamere.com forward slash gigs. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.